pray. Lord, we do thank you for being the King of Kings. Amen. We thank you that you're in control of everything that goes on in the world. And we adore you. And Lord, when, uh, when culture is pushing us one way or the other, just to know that you are eternal and you never change. And we can completely trust in you. We thank you for that. Lord, as we close the book of Romans, Lord, I pray that we would be established in the truth of the gospel. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. We've had some beautiful days out there this week. Amen. And they're all beautiful days, regardless of uh, the weather. But it's, it's really nice when we have some beautiful days like we've had. And, and, uh, and, and can you believe that we're actually closing the book of Romans today? I, wow. And uh, don't clap for that. Who's going to clap? <clears throat> so it's been 45 weeks of, of, uh, of, of studying Romans. And, and I don't know about you, but I've really learned a lot in this. As we come to the end of the book of Romans here, we're, we're now, we're beyond the meat of the message. We're at the close of, of the book of Romans, and we're at the personal side of things. Paul is drawing his letter to a close, and in chapter 16, he sends his personal greetings. And in doing so, he gave what I call the, Paul's honor roll. Remember that? Paul's honor roll. And so last week, we talked about uh, the honor roll as Paul walks through some of the men and women in, in Rome that were, that were doing the work of, of, uh, of, of what they were called to do of the Great Commission, and they were worthy of honor, and, and a couple of things that we picked up last week, so I, I want to review what we talked about last week, too, because it feeds right into what we're talking about this week, but we saw that his honor roll, his list, crossed every social strata. I mean, we had royalty like Aristobulus, Herodian, we had ex-slaves like, uh, like Amplius. It crossed over ethnic barriers. We had Greeks like Aquila and Priscilla. We had Jews like Mary. Uh, we had Romans like Andronicus and Junia. Uh, we even had an African in there like Rufus and, and his mother. And so it crossed over ethnic barriers. It crossed over gender barriers. There were men and women mentioned alike. Uh, it crossed over le- uh, the levels of skilled labor. You had um, people who were, were very very unskilled, and you had people who were very, we had the secretary of, of Emperor Claudius himself. So we had various levels there, and we had uh, crossed levels of notoriety. Some were famous, uh, some, some were, no one knew about until Paul recognized them in the book of Romans. And yet, and yet we find that, that God created, through, through inspiring Paul, this list of people that were honored, and we got to see that a person is honored by a different standard in God's eyes than what they're honored for in the eyes of mankind. Isn't that true? I mean, what kind of person, I mean, if you could imagine who your heroes might be, someone that if you were to stand in their presence, you would, you'd fumble around and maybe, you know, shake a little bit in your boots because, oh, I'm going to get a chance to talk to whomever this person might be. And most likely it's going to be someone famous or someone popular or someone uh, important from a cultural standpoint. Isn't that true? And uh, it's, it's by nature. But what, why were these people honored? And we saw last week how they were honored for their faithfulness. They found their role in the Great Commission, and they stuck to it. They, they, were, they were honored for their diligence. Many times last week we saw that Paul was honoring them for the labor that they did and how hard they worked. And they were honored for their resolve, whether it's uh, Andronicus and Junia who were willing to go to prison to preach the gospel, or Aquila and Priscilla who risked their lives for the gospel, uh, they had such resolve that they were going to do what was right. Now, if, if, if you want to talk about people who were established, uh, when people who were firm in their faith, firm in their belief, we saw a list of them last week, didn't we? What a beautiful, what a beautiful way to honor those people and to have their names carved into the word of God, which is eternal. Uh, what, what an honor. So we, we can see and we can learn a lot from this list that Paul gave last week, um, seeing whom Paul had on his list, but also who was not on his list. You see, I'm certain that there were men of great renown in Rome that as soon as they start hearing this list and they start hearing names of, oh, so-and-so was on the list, so-and-so was on the list, and boy, their congregation's smaller than mine, and then I'm sure there were men and women thinking, well, when's my name coming up? Right? 
when, when, when am I going to hear my name? It's, it's because remember, the, 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 the uh, tradition at that time was that when the, they would bring the letter, they would get the congregation together and they would read the entire letter publicly first. And then they would go through it and digest it um, slowly. And so as they're hearing the names for the first time, I'm sure there are men who are thinking, well, yeah, I've accomplished this and I've done that and I've done this, so I can't wait to hear my name on this. So you can, if you can put yourself in, in their shoes for, for a moment, but what, much to their surprise and to the surprise of many others, many of those names did not get on that list. In fact, some of the names um, of people who had great impact, whether it's a positive impact or, or not is, is a question, but uh, people who had great impact, had gr- large congregations, in fact, some of the roots of, of the Roman church, um, not mentioned on that list. In fact, they're categorized in a nameless group of, of people. In fact, let's take a look at that. Let's pick up where we left off. Romans chapter 16. We'll look at verse 17. Verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Now, this is very interesting here uh, when we look at this. Uh, here we, we just had a, a list of all the people that, got, that, that Paul was honoring, right? And now we have him giving nameless list. I call it Paul's dishonor roll, right? Paul's dishonor roll. Uh, and what's interesting here is there are no names on the list. He doesn't mention any names. I think, uh, I think he did that on purpose. And, uh, and so we don't find names. But, but uh, you know, there were people who felt like, well, we should be on this list, right? I mean, we have accomplished more. We've got a larger congregation. And we look really, our ministries look really sharp. But what we find is that, uh, in fact, there's a, a, a little meme that I found that, that says distinction. Looking sharp is easy when you haven't done any work. Right? <laughs> Isn't that true? And so you have people, some people who, because they're focusing on the wrong things, because they're focusing on appearance, because they're focusing on, on the way to get attention, and so they can look really sharp in ministry. But they weren't honored. Because what God was looking for was something very different. And, and so you have people think, well, if, if these guys are honored, I mean, these guys are dull, right? Look at me, I'm sharp. And... Why am I not on that list? And, and, uh, and what we see is that God is looking actually for those who are doing the hard work. They might not look so sharp because they're, they're in the ministry. They're doing it. They're, they're involved. Does that make sense? And so, uh, so looking sharp is easy when, when you, haven't, you haven't really done any of the work. But in this dishonor role that, uh, that we find here, there we go. In, uh, in chapter 16, we find three different groups of people. With no names, just types of people. Three categories of people that we find that Paul says, these, these men are not, even, they're not worthy of honor. In fact, they're, they're not worthy to even interact with them, avoid them. And so the first one we find is in the first part of verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions. Note those who cause divisions. So the first of the three categories are those who cause divisions. There are those who just like to divide. You know what I'm talking about? There are people who just, uh, they're zealous for separation. Now there's a, time, there's a time when we need to separate, right? So we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But there are those who are zealous for separation. Because it gives them a sense of superiority. If I can say, oh, then I can't associate with people like you, what's the implication? Because I'm up here and you're down there, right? And there's this attitude that goes behind separation sometimes uh, where uh, we have this sense of superiority. I can't associate with people who dot, 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 and you fill in the blank. Uh, it's, it's It's really a way of feeding our own pride, isn't it? What's the root of all sin? It's pride. I'll give some examples. When I was in uh, seminary, I was uh, trying to save money where I could. And so one semester, I decided to, uh, to stay at home, live at home, and take courses from a seminary that was closer to home. And uh, so I went there, and I'll never forget the first day. I, I sit in the class, and I didn't know a whole lot about the school. I, I didn't know much about it. But I'm sitting there. And the first class, the, the professor says, I want everyone to share your name and what school you've, you've come from and, and what brings you here. 
And uh, so I was sitting towards the back, and, and one by one, I, I'm listening to everyone say their name, what school they're from, and, and what brought them there. And they all gave the, the same answers on what brought them there. And, and, um, and, but when it came to the school, I found that, I just found, found it interesting, they all came from about three schools. And all of them were the schools that had a reputation in those days for being pretty strict, right? You know, and uh, uh, nothing wrong with being, with, with being strict. Schools have the rights to make whatever rules they want. But it just, I just, it just kind of hit me funny that they were, they were all from the same schools. And it seemed like no one was even paying attention because they all knew each other already. And uh, so I began to feel a little bit odd. And so by the time they, they came around to the back and they get, got to me and I said, I, my name is Dave Grafe and I'm from Baptist Bible College immediately everyone came out of their sleep right, and turned around to look as like, what in the world? There's a person here from Baptist Bible College? And, uh, you know, because I came from somewhere that was different than them. Now, a little, I didn't know what was going on, but I found out over time because they, gave, they have a, a, uh, a publication that they put out. I forgot if it was once a month or once a quarter or something. But at the end of that publication, they had a, on the last page every, every time, every issue, was something new from which to separate themselves from, Right? thought that was kind of interesting, and so I started looking at it, and, and, uh, and th- there, was, there would be something different, some church, or some organization, some ministry, or something, and it was always done in the, for- the format of wherefore, 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 therefore, so, and they came up with some, fu- some funny ones, in fact, the funniest one I thought, I, I, to this day, it baffles me, but it was separating from Cleveland, I know, how do you, I mean, how do you separate a church from Cleveland? I, I mean, um, but it, it said wherefore, and it started with wherefore is Satan is, was the author of music in heaven. And I thought, how do you get to Cleveland from there? <laughs> so I had to read this, you know. And it kind of went on and through, and, and it started going through, through all this. And then wherefore as, and then this is where it clicked, wherefore as Cleveland, it was, had, they were putting up the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, now I, okay, now I see where they're headed with this. And, uh, and therefore, we choose to separate from Cleveland. But I thought, how on earth, do, what does that mean? I mean, you don't, ch- you don't plant churches there? Or what? <laughs> you, you have to drive around? Cle- I, I don't know. They just knew they were separate from Cleveland. And, uh, and so I, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. So I thought, man, this is interesting. So I got some of the older issues and I started backing them up. And I went to the issue that had been released right before I started classes there. And I looked at it and they were separating from Baptist Bible College. <laughs> uh, so that explains a lot about the reaction of the students that first day. Right? And, and when I started reading it and it said that Baptist Bible College, they don't teach in the blood, the necessity of the blood of Jesus Christ uh, for salvation, I thought that is the weirdest thing because I sat in a lot of classes where they emphasized the, the, the need for the blood of Christ. And, and so they took a quote out of context and basically what it was is there was an opportunity where a, pers- where a professor could have said the blood on the cross and he just said the cross in context and so they made the assumption that he never talks about the blood. I called my professor up and asked if anyone had ever called him and, before, and he had never heard of the publication, no one had ever confirmed the details. Why? Because there was a zeal for separation. And it even causes someone to, to look for things for, for, by which to separate from other people. Do you, do you get the, the, the idea of what I'm talking about? That's the zeal for separation. And, and uh, we, we ought not separate from people over things that, that, that are not that important. We're going to talk about when we should in a moment. But, um, but that's what he's getting. There are those who cause divisions. There are people who who want to sneak in and they're, they're, like, they're like water on Michigan roads. They, they, they go into the cracks of the roads and then the, then the winter comes and then they expand and they crack and they cause divisions, right? And, and there are people that do that. They come into churches and they, and they, they do that. And, and Paul says very clearly, I'm not even going to name them. Don't Just note them and avoid them. Right? Note them and avoid them. Uh, this is the first category. Those who cause divisions. The second one we read in the second part of the same verse. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. So the second are those who cause offenses. 
Now, the, the word here for offense is the same word that we find translated in, in other portions as obstacle, right? So offenses, they're obstacles. Uh, I love obstacle courses. Anyone else like obstacle courses? Anyone watch American Ninja Warrior? All right, so, all right, there's a few, a few American Ninja Warrior fans. And so obstacles can be fun, right, in, in that sense. But the idea is that if they were to just run through the course, it would take no time at all. But it becomes difficult, it becomes hard, because there are obstacles. And so that's why the majority of people could not complete the obstacles and finish the course. Which, for entertainment, is not a problem. In real life, that is a problem. In our Christian walk, that becomes a problem because when people put obstacles in our way, it stops us from accomplishing what we're supposed to accomplish. And we have a job to do. We, God has given us a job to do. And when there are, there are people who, who put obstacles in the path, it, it, it makes it very difficult. In fact, that's the definition of an obstacle. is something that makes progress more difficult. In the context here of Romans, from what we've read, from Romans 1 to Romans 16, we find that there's one example of this, very, very clear. And that were, there were those, they were called the circumcision. They were adding to the gospel saying, if you don't convert to the, Juda- the Judaistic cultures and customs, you cannot be saved. Remember that? And so they were adding something to the gospel, making the gospel even more difficult than it, than it is by nature. Because, you know, the gospel is offensive, isn't it? Yeah, it has to be offensive. Because it touches us right where it hurts, in our pride. In fact, you cannot come to Jesus Christ and accept him without humbling yourself. Why? Because the Bible says we have to come to that point where we recognize that we can't earn our salvation. We can't do anything for it. We have to humble ourselves and understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins. And that will blow us away. If we really grasp that, that blows us away. And in awe, we just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this gift of salvation. Amen? And so, so the gospel is offensive to people because it tells them that what they're doing is wrong. Boy, that's not a comfortable thing. But it's, a, it's, it's done in love. It's done in love. So in the context, we have these legalists who are adding things to, to salvation. The, the circumcision, they were adding, adding things to salvation. So we have to be very careful not to add things uh, to salvation. And, you know, it happens to this day. There are people who add things to it. Um, when I think of, of the Roman Catholic Church, who's some of the seed leaders of that, of, of that movement are, are people that probably thought their names were going to be mentioned here, right? And, and yet we find that it's not just accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, I'm not saying all Catholics are not saved, okay? I'm not saying that. But if you follow Catholic doctrine, do you see, do you see the problem it can get you into? Because, oh, I have to earn this, I have to earn that, I have to earn that. When God is saying, no, the moment you start earning it, you lose your, your humility and pride enters back into the picture. It's not how it works. And so we, we have to be very careful. Uh, there's a man down in Florida named Peter Ruckman. Uh, he adds to salvation and he says, if you, he says, if you don't get saved out of the King James 1611, then you didn't get saved. Uh, you know, now I'm not knocking the King James 1611 at all. I wouldn't do that. But yet, what I will knock is someone who says that if you didn't get saved out of that, you're not saved. Wouldn't you? Uh, why? Because he's doing exactly what Paul condemns in the King James 1611 Bible. And that is that you're adding something to the gospel. You can't do that. You can't put obstacles. You can't make it harder. I, I think this, this is the, the example in context, but I think the principle is a little bit bigger than that. The idea is when, when you become the obstacle... The gospel is offensive enough in itself just because it has to be. But when we become the obstacle on top of that and we make it more difficult for a person to accept Christ, woe to us, right? Let me share an example. Uh, I, I remember uh, going to Baptist Bible College and, and the students had a great reputation overall. In fact, when I took a job at Montage Mountain, it was a ski resort, uh, I took a job there, and I, and I came in. I said, do you have any positions available? And they said, sorry, we've done all the hiring. I said, oh, that's too bad because it would have worked out. My roommate is, it works here. We could have ridden together. And he said, wait, your roommate, what college do you go to? I said, Baptist Bible College. And he said, well, you're hired then. And I heard him get on the phone right then and call and say, say to someone, um, yes, we're going to have to let you go. Yeah. And so he fired someone <laughs> to hire me. I felt bad for the guy for a little bit. And uh, 
but I was happy to have the job, right? And, and, you know, the pay wasn't great, but you could ski for free. And, and so it was a great job for me. And, and so, I, you know, because Baptist Bible College had an overall a good reputation. And so normally that would facilitate conversations with people about God. But I can remember one time when it didn't because um, I was talking to a man. We ended up working the same, the same lift, uh, chair lift that one night. And we started talking about God. It was a slow night. We were able to talk quite a bit. I could just sense things were, things were progressing forward. And, and I'm thinking, this is I think I'm going to get a chance to tell this person about salvation today. But somewhere in the conversation, he said, well, what school do you go to anyway? So I said, Baptist Bible College. And he immediately went silent. He could tell he just distanced himself. And it was it, it, later on that night, it hit me that I recognized him. He played soccer. In, uh, in the conversation, he mentioned that he played soccer for Scranton University. Now, he had long hair. I mean, it was, it was down to about here. He had long hair. And... When he said that, I remember thinking, I watched that game. I saw him play. I remember who he is because he's the only one with super long hair. And I remember hearing some people in the crowd that day make references to him like, who's that? Is that a woman out there? This is an unsafe person. And those few students, even though they didn't represent the whole, to that man, they represented Jesus Christ and Christianity. Does that make sense? They became an obstacle. I never got to share my faith with him because he wouldn't hear anything else about Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. Sorry, I didn't know I'd get emotional about that. (laughs) That's what Paul is saying. When you become an obstacle to the gospel, then that is dishonorable. You should not be recognized for whatever it is you think you, you do that earns credit with God. You have become an offense to the gospel. The, the third thing that we find is in the, the last part of that, that uh, sentence. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. See, the first two, the first two things kind of fit together at one end of the spectrum. Uh, this one kind of goes to the other end of the spectrum. And, and those who distort doctrine. And what I mean by that is that at one end of the spectrum, they're zealous for separation. They're zealous for adding things uh, to the gospel to maintain some sense of pride. Here, when we're talking about uh, distorting doctrines, it's kind of the other end of the spectrum. It's, it's, it's when people are zealous for unity, so they water down the gospel so that it doesn't even, the gospel doesn't even affect our pride. Does that make sense? Let me say it one more time. In one case, people are zealous for separation, so they add to the gospel so that they can keep their pride. On the other end, people are zealous for unity and connection to other people, so they take things out of the gospel so that the gospel no longer even touches our pride. And both of these are distortions. If you follow either of those, you will not be established in your faith. And, uh, and, and so the gospel, the gospel, like I said, is offensive. It hurts our pride. Um, so the thought is, well, if we make the gospel less offensive than it is, then maybe we can reach more people. Have you seen that in the world today? As you look at, at TV, as you look at, uh, at, at Christian ministries watering down the gospel, I'm going to share just a couple of examples. Here's one. Uh, take, take Rob Bell in his book called Love Wins. I don't know how many of you have read that book. But the goal of the book is to eliminate the concept of hell. Uh, the, in fact, this is what we, you find inside the cover. Uh, if you can't read it from where you're at, it says, God loves us. God offers us everlasting life by grace, freely, through no merit of our, uh, on our part. Unless you do not respond the right way, then God will torture you forever in hell. Huh? So he throws out the question. Actually, I don't mind the question. It's a great question. The church should have a good answer to this, right? What I don't like is the answer. I start reading his book. And, and basically the logic is, is as simple as this. Hell is offensive to people. 
to tell people that what they have done in their life is wrong, that they have offended their creator, and that their creator is going to hold them accountable for that, that's offensive to people. You can reach a whole lot more people if you don't believe in that. And so he went through systematically trying to explain away all of the the, the biblical doctrines of of eternal punishment, right? And and you find that, that, that there's a word for that. He's not the first one to do that. This is called universalism. It existed all the way back in the days of Paul, right? People started to do this in the days of Paul. If you can't uh, read what it says at the bottom there, it says, God cannot be good unless everyone goes to heaven. It's not good enough that he gave his one and only son. I mean, isn't that what the root of it really is? I, I changed it myself. I put universalism because eternal torment is only temporary. Right? No, it, the Bible's clear. It's eternal. And so when you take away the truth of the gospel in order to reach people for the gospel, then you lose the gospel. Isn't that true? I'll give one more example. Uh, another one, this would be by Rob Bell as well, but by many others, but, um, but changing the definition of, of marriage. This is Matthew Vines and his book, he became quite famous for this book, called God and the Gay Christian. It says what the Bible says, that's a misnomer by the way, uh, and doesn't say about homosexuality. Uh, and so he's the one who's, who came up with the, the famous being gay is not a sin. And I actually watched a video where he talked about seven biblical arguments for, you know, the, in, in favor of of changing the definition of marriage to include homosexuality. They, they weren't biblical, they weren't good, and, 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 and they were filthy in some cases. And, and so changing the definition, why is it? Because the thought is, the world doesn't see what's wrong with, some, with certain sins, so when we tell people that sin is sin, what's, then they're going to be offended at that. So if we just change our definitions, we could reach a lot more people. Do you see the logic behind that? Do you see the problem with the logic behind that? Because if we don't understand what sin is, then we'll never get to that point that we need to come to before we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. And that's the point of humbling ourselves, recognizing our sinfulness. Because if you don't think you're a sinner, if you don't recognize that, then you won't understand grace. And so when you take away the the depth of sin, then we are really destroying the depth of God's grace. Because I've got great, great news for you. It doesn't matter if you're a homosexual. It doesn't matter if, if you're all those things. If you repent because Jesus Christ will forgive you and cleanse you of all of those things. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And so the point isn't to, to say this so, so that we can to hurt people's feelings. The, the point is to show them the, the, the grace of God. But they won't understand the grace of God unless they understand the depth of our sinfulness. Isn't that true? So what, what's wrong with doing this? Well, Paul answers it in verse 18. He says, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. The answer to that, they don't, they don't really serve Christ. They serve themselves. They get people to follow them instead of Christ. When you, when you water down the gospel, the people aren't following Christ anymore. They're following you. And, and, and so if they're following you, then, then, then they're not following Christ. And, and, uh, and what's the command? In fact, this is, this is what Peter was talking about. Peter spoke on the same subject. But in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, we, write, we read this. But there were also false prophets among the people. He's talking Old Testament there. And now he switches to New Testament. He says, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the word of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. What is, Paul, what is uh, Peter saying here? He's saying there are false teachers. They're going to come in, and they're going to sound really good. They're going to sound really good. And, and, they're, they're, gonna, and they're not going to say, hey, let's go be bad. They're going to say, this is good. This is the new good. And, and, uh, and, so, and, it's, and it's working in our culture, isn't it? It's working in our culture to where, to where they don't look at homosexuality as anything bad. Or they don't look at that as offending God or, 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 or a distortion of God's design. They look at us as bad for not condoning that. 
we see that uh, we see that in, in the recent decision in Iowa, uh, right? Where where now they're they're saying churches are no longer exempt uh, from their their discrimination laws, which includes that you don't even have the right to choose what 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 gender pronouns you use. You, you're not allowed to call a transgender person a, a he if he chooses to be a she. You can't do that in Iowa anymore. I mean, that, that, so why? Because the, the, there is a new ethic, a new morality in our world. And, uh, and so it's deceptive. And, and it, it's, it, it will pull us away. And it's doing it. We see churches doing that. Uh, we see, there's a, there's a, a church that I saw online. I saw their webs, uh, website not too long ago. And, and, I, and I thought that's like the entire movement of the church is just to, to, to bring in the new definition of marriage and in, inclusive. And it breaks my heart because the, the pastor there is a first cousin of mine. And, and to see that, that happen, it breaks my heart. But they don't serve Christ. They serve, they serve themselves. You know, and we've been talking about the, 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 the desire to make our mark, the desire to, to make a contribution in this world, right? Uh, that's, that's why we see Paul honoring people for what they were doing to make a contribution in this world. Um, but really, if you, wanna, if you want proper recognition, it's got to be for the right things, for faithfulness, for, for diligence, for resolve. In fact, look how Paul continues uh, um, in verse 17. He says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and do what? Avoid them. Avoid them. Ignore them. It will eat them up. Why? Because who do they serve? They serve themselves. They want the attention. They want people to follow them. They, that's what they want. And so the Bible says, avoid them. First, note them. You've got to know who they are, and avoid them. This is a little bit different than Paul's command to Timothy. If you look at Paul's command to Timothy, Timothy was a pastor. And so he told them, the word he used there was expose them. So he said, you need to expose them. You, there, there comes a point where you have to be able to say, hey, people, look at this. You've got to learn to recognize what's false when you see it, right? But then once you expose them, what are Christians called to do? To hate them? Nope. Throw stones at them? Nope. Uh, to, to pray for them? Yes. But to avoid them. Don't participate with them. Don't, we're, we're, that's what we're called to, to, to do, and is to ignore them. Expose them, but ignore them. Don't participate with them. And who does get the recognition? If we, uh, if we look at verse 19, look what he said. For your obedience has become known to all. Where should the renown really come from? Well, we learned last week, it's not from your notoriety. It's not from how much you accomplish. It's not from, from who you think you are in the world's eyes. But where should it come from? It should come from your obedience. Doing the right thing. He says, for your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. See, those who water down the gospel and they take things out of it, it's, it there, there's this idea that you have to become very understanding of the, of the evils in the world and you have to participate in that. And, and you have to, you ha- that's the only way to engage our culture is to, to participate in it, right? And, and, and what does Paul say? No, I want you to be wise with what kinds of things? The good things. But when it comes to evil, I want you to be simple. This is a strong word. Simple is the same word in almost every context in Scripture. The word simple is negative, right? Almost every context. And it, because, in fact, in Proverbs, it talks about the simple. The simple, those are, those are people who don't, don't have it all going on, right? They're a few cards short of a full deck or whatever. A few fries short of a happy meal. Or you've heard all of those. That's what it means to be simple, but... Here's one case where the Bible says we should be simple when it comes to things that are evil. We don't have to, you don't have to participate in evil to understand evil. Right? Experience is the worst teacher. Uh, you've probably heard experience is the best teacher. Yeah, that's true in, in a positive context. Yeah, there's a sense in which that's true. But in a lot of contexts, experience is the worst teacher. Uh, I mean, we learn to stop for a train, hopefully not through experience. Right? Hopefully, just we watch and we think about it and say, 
two objects cannot hold the same place at the same time. I'm going to stop. He's much bigger than me. You don't, you don't want to learn from experience. You don't want to learn uh, um, you know, that adultery can, can hurt a marriage by, by committing adultery. You want to know it because it's, it's true. Experience is, is one of the worst teachers in many cases. And, and, uh, and so it's through obedience that God's called us. And so we want to be simple concerning the things that are evil. Right? Simple concerning those things. It's the obedient ones that God recognizes. And then we come to verse 20. This, this verse uh, baffles, has baffled me for years. Listen to what it says. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. This is how he closes this section. I don't know about you, but this just jumps off the page to me because it starts off on a fluffy cloud, right? The grace, or the God of peace, right? When you think about that, I mean, you can't describe God in a more peaceful way. And yet, the, so you would think it would say, the God of peace will comfort you, or the God of peace will, will lift up your head, or the God of peace will do something nice and, and, and fluffy, right? But what does it say? The God of peace will crush Satan, right? <laughs> Isn't that what it says? I mean, you can't read the word crush in a nice, you know, happy... You can't say it with a smile. You've got to say it with that, you know, monster truck voice, right? He's, he's going to crush Satan. Why? Because Satan, is, is, Satan deserves to be crushed. And so we've got, we've got these two sides of God that come out in the same sentence. This is really interesting to me. Uh, and you've got the God of peace, and he's, he's trash-talking here, right? In a sense, he's saying... He, God, he's going he's gonna to crush Satan. I mean, the word crush, this is a strong word, right? You don't get the image of, of, of two sportsmen, you know, like, uh, like they do in, uh, uh, in fencing where, you know, they go after each other and they poke each other. Oh, good job. No, no, good job. To you. It's not like that. Crushing Satan. You get this idea of crushing. I mean, it's like, like Satan, Satan's down here and, and, and God's going, take that. Right? You've got the God of peace crushing Satan. What, what's he getting at here? We've seen, we've seen this, these two sides of this issue. Yes, God is a God of love. God is a God of peace. God wants restoration. He wants things to be working in harmony. And he's designed things for that. At the same time, there's evil that tries to stop that. And there's only one way to deal with evil. You've got to crush it. You've got to crush it. And so... So this, understanding these two sides of God should really help us in this context because should we, should we be separating from people in certain, in certain contexts? No, why? Because we're, we're a God of peace. We should be getting along. But should we participate in the sins of the, of, of the world and, 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 and ignore sin? And so? No, because God is a God who crushes the enemy. Sin will be punished. And, and, and until we understand that these two these two sides have got uh, fit together in perfect unity, then we don't understand God, right? Because God loves what is good and he hates what is evil. A follower of God is going to love what is good and is going to hate what is evil. Isn't that what we learn in the book of Romans? And so that's, uh, that's what he's getting at. It, it, this is not very inclusive language, right? It's not a, hey, everybody's fine. Let's just come in and... and have a Christian party. It's not, it's not what, what Paul is calling us to. And that's not real unity anyway. It's not real unity. When you bring sin right in, it's like, hey, let's, let's as sheep, let's, let's have unity with the wolves. Let's just bring them inside. No, it doesn't work that way. They'll come from the inside out and they'll eat us alive. And that's what Paul's getting at here. The God of peace will crush Satan. He's not, he can't be inclusive of sin. It's interesting here, it's at this point that Paul just simply uh, talks who he's sending, uh, the, or who the letter is being sent from. See, up until this point, all the greetings have been who he was sending the letter to, and greetings to people there. Uh, he takes an, a couple of verses and, and talks about his, his team. This is Paul's missionary team. He has Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipater, or my countrymen, greet you. Then I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. By the way, in Greek, they have a special way of saying, I wrote uh, the letter, and another one for I authored and wrote the letter. This is just, I wrote the letter. So to help us understand, Tertius didn't author this letter. Does that make sense? But he was the one who physically wrote it. Uh, in fact, it's believed that Paul was not very good at writing for one reason or another, because in one other 
point of the New Testament. He says, see with what, I write this with my own hand, he says. You can tell from the big letters. So, um, uh, so Tertius was the one who was on his team but wrote the letter. So they greet you in the Lord. It goes on to say, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church greets you. Erastus, the, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cordus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So he, he concludes by telling them who sent the letter. And then he gives his, his final words. We call it a, a, a benediction, uh, a benediction uh, that he gives in verses uh, in, the, in the verses uh, 25 to 27. But I think before we even read those, I, I want us to see how this relates to everything that we've just been talking about. See, today we've been looking at the two extremes. There's one sense in which we, we don't want to be too divisive, and then there's another sense in which we don't want to be too inclusive. But how do you reconcile those two concepts? Right in the benediction, Paul answers that question. Um, he's already answered it in part, um, by something that we read earlier. Because remember back in verse 17, it says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, what? Contrary to the doctrine which you learned. So how do we know where to draw that line? We look at the doctrine that has already been taught. Who is he, who is he talking about here? He's talking about what the apostles laid in the foundation that we call the New Testament. We're talking about biblical doctrine. The good news for us is that we have an anchor. Right? We have an anchor. Uh, it, it, what is an anchor for? You know, when you think of, uh, of, of a boat, it's, an anchor is, is very simple, and there's all sorts of types of anchors. An anchor is very simple. An anchor is something that, that it has a heavy weight that is to stay stationary, something that doesn't move, right? And then you connect it with a chain to the boat, and then what happens? Yeah, it, you don't drift. Well, you can drift so, so far, right? You can drift a little bit in one, one direction or, or another, but it only a safe distance keeps you at, the, at the, the generally right location, but then it keeps you from drifting off too far, right? Makes sense? We have a theological anchor, and we have an anchor for us in life, and it's biblical doctrine. To, to follow the doctrines, it's contrary to the doctrine that you, which you have learned. In other words, it's the doctrine that was already laid once and for all, and, and that's what it's, what it's for. Now, I, I, don't have a great, um, I don't have a boat anchor or anything like that. Um, if I had a PC, I'd just use that. Because um, a lot of people know I'm a Mac guy. So. Um, that's a bad joke. I'm sorry. So, but this would work as an anchor right here. This, this is very simple. It's, all it is is just you know, a, uh, a brick, basically. Right? But what, the, the basic concept of, of, the anchor, of the anchor is that as, as maybe winds and waves could drive me one way, I'll, get, I'll only get so far, and it keeps me from going where I shouldn't go. And then as maybe, maybe things shift, I could... I mean, it gives me a, a pretty large amount of space. There are some freedoms, uh, but yet, if I, as long as I'm anchored to this, it keeps me where I need to be. Does that make sense? Biblical doctrine does that for us in the way we live our lives. Uh, when we hold to the Bible and we say, I'm not going to believe in anything that the Bible rejects. I'm going to let the Bible be the, the, the basis of my belief. Then culture can change and there might be some things that change, right? Uh, I mean, we have uh, churches who, uh, I remember growing up in a culture where we had Sunday school at 945 and church at 11 and worship, uh, uh, or excuse me, prayer Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. And, and you could go just about anywhere in the state and pretty much every church had the same had the same thing, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but you could go to another place. You could go to, to Costa Rica, right? And we have a very different, we had a very different culture there. Things are very different. We had one service on Sunday morning. It would usually last a lot longer. Uh, it would, we'd, we'd start at 9, right? Is that right? We'd start at 9, and we'd go till 11.30. Is that about right? My wife has a much better memory than I do, so... Uh, so why, so there, there are, there's room for some debate, but you know what's interesting is that the people in Costa Rica at, at, at Living Rock Baptist Church and the people right here in, at, at Heritage Baptist Church and, and there are many other churches, up, we actually are all still anchored to the exact same thing. And there's, so there's a, a, a fellowship that we, that we share. In Spanish, we call it compañerismo, right? Where you can see the word companion built right into that word because we're, we share the same anchor. Paul is saying the anchor for us is the doctrine which you have already received. It's the New Testament doctrine. It's what we have right here in our scriptures. 
So if you could imagine this not being just a brick but being God's word, then, the, then that would give us a better image of what Paul's saying here. Now if we look at the prayer as Paul closes, look what he says. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. This, this idea of being established means that you're stationary. You're not going to be moved. You're not going to be taken with the winds. You're not going to be taken with the waves. You're going to be where you need to be. This idea of, of establishment is, is the same concept of, of, of what we find in the word anchor. And he's saying you're going to be established according to what? According to the gospel. You know, a big portion of what that is is the, 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 the gospel. And so if someone has accepted the gospel, then they're chained to this just like I am. Does that make sense? Not just the gospel, but what else? It says um, uh, the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Again, we find this is what we find in the in the New Testament. God's word revealed, and we find that this is the anchor for us. This is the anchor for us. So, what's the answer? How do we find this? The, the answer is very simple. If I'm here, and there's another person over here. But we're both tied to the same anchor, then we ought not separate ourselves. I ought not say, how dare you have one two and a half hour service when you should have three services that add up to two and a half hours, right? And fight, fight over that. Or how dare you use those instruments when we use these instruments? Or, how, or sometimes even in church we find this. How dare you dress up like this to church when I think we should dress up like that to church? And, and, and you know, that's everybody's choice, right? Because it's how we relate to God. And as long as we're anchored to the same anchor, we shouldn't let those things, this binds us together. But when the storm comes and the culture pulls us this way, this is what's going to keep us from following the culture too far this way. This is what's going to keep us from following the culture too far this way. And and, and that's also why we don't water down the gospel because watering down the gospel is kind of like saying, wait, the Bible says to stop right here. But I could reach these people if I just let go of the doctrine. Isn't that what they're doing when they water down the gospel? They say, well, okay. I, could, I, I think I could reach these people. Th- th- this is kind of offensive. They don't want to be over here. They want to be over there. So I'm just, I'm just going to drop that. And, uh, and what happens? They lose sight of this. And without even knowing it, they drift off into oblivion. And Paul is saying very clearly here, you've got to be tied to the anchor. You've got to, if, you, if you want to be established, you're going to be established in the gospel of Jesus Christ and then of preaching about him. That's how you're established. That's how you can stay firm. And you know what? Culture will take us this way. Culture will take us that way. And, uh, and we'll stay firm right where we need to be. That's what it means to be established. He goes on to say, look at it one more time. He says, now to him who is able to establish you. which is giving the glory to God here. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. The whole realm, the whole history of mankind has been pointing to this event where Jesus Christ became the pinnacle of history. And because of this, we are established in faith and in obedience. We believe it and we act it out. It goes on to say, To God alone be glory through Jesus Christ forever. If you want to be established, this is it. Otherwise, you'll be like James says, a a double-minded man is unstable in in all of his ways, tossed to and fro by by the wind and the waves. Is that you? Or do you want to be established? And say, I'm not going to let the culture move me. I'm not going to let anyone else move me. I'm going to be where God wants me to be, be established in his word. Four questions that I want to ask today before I give you an opportunity to respond. Number one, how will you be honored by God? When you stand before God, how will you be honored? Not by our human standards anymore, but now that we know his standards, uh, do you seek recognition for your accomplishments or status? Or do you strive for faithfulness, diligence, 
and resolve. Third question, how might you be causing divisions or offenses? Is there anything in your behavior that would cause others to say, if that's what Christianity is about, then I don't want it? And number four, are there any doctrines that maybe you have watered down saying, you know what, I know the Bible says this, but, but I think I could reach somebody else. I think I could do something if I just let go of the doctrine that God has already taught us. Because if, if your answer to these is not right, then you will not be established. And you'll be like the double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways, tossed here and there by the waves of culture. This is how to find real significance in life. Not just this life, but an eternal life. And that's the message of the book of Romans. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you've taught me in the book of Romans. I pray, Lord, that I would be more established in my faith and more established in my obedience. And Lord, I pray the same thing for everyone in this room. We thank you for for the fact that we did not have to earn it. We did not have to do anything for our salvation except for humbly come to that point where we recognize what you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, that every single one of us would be able to walk out today knowing you and knowing that we're established in you. Lord, if there's anyone here today that does not know you personally, maybe they've, they've heard about you or they know a lot about you, maybe even grown up in church, but they've never come to that point where they've personally accepted what Jesus Christ did for, for them on the cross, I pray that today would be that day. And in just a moment as we sing, Lord, I pray that you'd work in their hearts in such a way that they could not help but come forward. And Lord, I pray too for any, for any others who we've accepted you as our Lord and Savior, but we're not as established as we should be. I pray, Lord, that we would recommit today to hanging on to the anchor of the sound doctrine that you've given to us in your word. And Lord, I pray that we would not be an offense to those around us, but that we would be a light to them. I pray this in Christ's name.